Hi, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Ask a Death Doula. My name is Suzanne O'Brien. Thank you so much for being with me today. This is a free forum of education, interviews, of question and answer segments, of a segment that we also call I love being a death doula, and that is going to be interviewing and sharing doula experiences from around the world, sharing the work, um, hearing their actual bedside experiences and working with families and the difference that being a doula giver, end-of-life doula makes in the journey. So it's really powerful. The other thing that we're going to be doing on Ask a Death Doula is we're going to be interviewing end-of-life patients. I don't think there's any better way to understand what somebody is going through other than hearing it from them. And obviously that is not an easy thing to do, to have an end-of-life person want to share their story and be able to share their story, but it does happen. And I think that all of us are working forward to make a positive change in end-of-life And people that are going through it themselves want to be heard and they want to share what makes a better experience for them or what they feel that we should change in order to have it be a better experience for people. So welcome to Ask a Death Doula. My name is Suzanne O'Brien. Ask a Death Doula is brought to you by doulagivers.com, end-of-life doula training, and the International End-of-Life Doula Foundation, allowing for free education, support, and programs to both patient and families worldwide in the hopes that everyone everywhere can have the best end-of-life experience possible. I'm very excited today for this show. We are going to do the first in the actual end-of-life doula community caregiver training. This has been a class that is so highly requested um, and makes such a difference for people that we are so thankful and privileged to be able to share that on different forums. And we're going to do that with the podcast as well. So it's four weeks of classes. This is going to be number one. It's going to be what you can say to somebody and how you can support them when they first get terminally diagnosed. So enjoy week one, level one, end of life doula, family caregiver training. trying to do every last option of treatment, you can only imagine that that doesn't really prepare us well for when that that patient is actually going to die. So um, I was seeing a lot of that and it was really heartbreaking to watch. And I was thinking, but why, why is this happening? You know, why even when we have patients that had full, wonderful lives, why was there such a denial of this thing called end of life? And why was there such a fight to try and hang on to every breathing moment when some of some of that, the quality of life was so poor that it was almost um, hard to watch patients in those situations when they seemed like they were very uncomfortable and, um, you know, being kind of stuck in that in that place. So looking back on it and looking at this fear, now at the same time that this fearful experience was happening in multiple rooms, I would have beautiful experiences in other rooms. And the great thing about this was that I literally would come out of the room and think if people knew about those endings, if they knew about these passings, how beautiful and 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 healthy. You know, I I use the word healthy because when things are in place and when family is is accepting of the time that we're going to have to say goodbye to the loved one, it is a healthy part of our life's journey for everybody. And it would actually be quite beautiful, the goodbyes, the thank yous, the I love yous, um, and, and having that person be extremely comfortable and having them be supported with dignity and all that those elements that are so so vital at that end. So when I saw those endings I said we need to talk about end of life for multiple reasons. For one, 
preparing for it, preparing for something that is an inevitable part, inevitable part of the life's journey, but also to share with people that there are positive, beautiful end of life experiences. So maybe this fear that has been built up really is something that might not exactly be needed. So when you don't talk about something, the fear builds up. So the movement, there is a big movement happening with end of life, with this whole not talking about it, not preparing for it is not working. And people are looking for options. They're looking for something different. And I'm so happy to say that I see it. You know, I work in obviously the field, but I see this shift. I see an overall shift. There is the Death Cafe movement. I don't know if any of you know about that, but that's a global movement. It's a social movement about people who simply get together in in a cafe type of atmosphere and talk about what they feel death is. So when you have these, it's a safe place for people to just share their views and actually talk about this this word, the D word, what I call the D word, because no one wants to say it. Um, and I've been to the cafes in the city and all different places. I've held I've held multiple cafes where um, we've had everybody who comes. And the the important thing is that everyone's views are respected. That nobody is leading anyone to believe any particular. Um, opinion. It's everyone. So I have people who are atheists, people who um, have a great spiritual faith, um, people who just don't know. And it's wonderful that they can get together and talk about this common factor that is going to affect all of us. And also it bonds us all. We are all connected. We all have the same needs and, um, things that we have to have in place for our family that is part of the end of life process. So I love always connecting that because I I think that we as humans are so much more alike than not. And I think we always are pointing out the differences and where, when it's, you know, when you're with somebody at the end of life, it doesn't get more real than that. And all the stuff, all the kind of nonsense goes out the window. So it really, um, there's a common bond that is so special and it just doesn't have any barriers as far as class, money, color, religion. It, it all comes down to this human connection and it's really, really beautiful. And that's why we really want to help one another through it and help families to have the best experience with their loved ones. So when I was going and doing my research, and of course, this all really started the moment I stepped into end-of-life care, which was over 10 years ago, I just thought, what what happened here and why did it happen? So I had to go digging for more statistics and research, and this just backed up what I was seeing with my patients themselves. So nine out of 10 people say that they want to be cared for at home if they become terminally ill. And this is done by the National Hospice Organization, a Gallup poll in 1996. There have been other polls since then that have the same uh, statistics. And this is exactly what I was experiencing with my work, especially in the hospital environment where my patients would tell me, you know, at the end, if they were at that end of life, that they just want to go home. So it was so important for them. And I think anyone of us who has been in the hospital know that it's very difficult to get rest in the hospital. You know, it's kind of funny when you think about that, that people need need their rest. And, um, you know, there's all this noise and the beeping and people coming in and out of the room. So it's, it's not always the, the best place, especially for people at end of life. And my patients, you know, I'd have people who lived wonderful, full lives, 80, 90, and they, you know, they're weak at this point. And they just sort of, you really develop a nice relationship um, with your patients. And they would just sort of pull on my little sleeve there and say, well, what am I doing? You know, you know, why am I here? And explain to me again, what's going on. And I would sort of go over and we have to know that, you know, when 
people are ill, not everything that they're, um, you know, talked about as far as medically, do they always understand and, uh, you know, they're not feeling well. So maybe they're not understanding as well, everything. So we really had to have a lot of compassion for them and try and explain, you know, maybe why they were there, that they were having some kind of complication or, you know, maybe there was another possibility to try something. Um, but a lot of the times they would just say, you know, I really, I really want to go home and can you help me to, to do that? So again, this just what I was experiencing backed up or vice versa, those statistics that are out there. This is one of the best things that you can do for yourself and for your family is the advanced directive, the healthcare proxy and living well. An advanced directive consists of two documents. It's a healthcare proxy and a living will. A living will will tell you on paper what you choose or do not choose for end of life care. And the healthcare proxy is the person that you appoint to speak for you if you're not able to speak for yourself. This is one of the single best things you could possibly do for a positive end-of-life experience, and I'll tell you why. Because if you have these papers, you have had this conversation. I mean, we have to educate on healthcare proxies because um, I don't want to throw my mother under the bus, but I do use her as an example a lot. I adore her. She doesn't like to talk about sensitive subjects like this. She does come to know that she does have advanced directives. Um, she didn't know where they were, but she would say that she had the paper, but she didn't know where it was located. Um, she didn't know who on the top of her head was the healthcare proxy. That's not how this this has this scenario has to be. So what we're going to advocate and teach people in this is that the advanced directives, you need to have a conversation. If just one person, you have to have it with who you want to be your healthcare proxy. It's so important that they understand and are comfortable with being the proxy with what wishes you have. If somebody, and there are plenty of people that think it should be their spouse, um, and there, I've had spouses tell me I'm the proxy, but I just don't know if I can do it, I just don't know that I'm comfortable with it, then they shouldn't be the proxy. So this is something, again, we have to really get out there and advocate and educate people on what advanced directives are, what they mean, and, and more of how you can implement them. The other thing that's really important to know is that you do not need a lawyer for either one of these. They are state sensitive. So if you're in New York state, they vary slightly and you want to have the state where you live. You want to have the proxy form for that state. Um, there are wonderful websites that you can download and just print out a proxy form. Um, AARP has them. Your, um, your state health department will have that. Your, uh, you have a wonderful organization called theconversationproject.org, and they actually go into more depth of how to even start that conversation with your family members that can be a little bit tricky. I will tell you, as uncomfortable as this conversation is in the front end of things, it will completely change the dynamic for the end because your wishes are in writing and you don't have to put that burden on your family they will not always agree. I mean, more times than not, the family is at odds. And so that is never the time that you want more stress upon them. So know it's a little uncomfortable to have this conversation now, but you will be saving them in the end. Also, what, what will happen is explain why you are choosing what you're choosing. Ex explain to them what is important to you for quality of life. So maybe when you're answering a question about um, that you don't want to be kept on artificial ventilation, meaning a breathing tube, you know, explain why that might be. Because if you can't speak to somebody, and I'm speaking for myself right now, if I can't talk to my loved ones, if I can't see them and acknowledge them, that's not a quality of life to me. And I don't want to be kept just breathing on a feeding tube. I mean, on a breathing tube. And I really don't want a feeding tube either if it comes to that. So it's very important to, to have that camp family conversation. Let them ask questions and make sure that your proxy, who you're asking to be your proxy, is really comfortable with being your proxy. Don't put somebody in a, 
a more of a stressful situation than needs to be when this end of life appears, because we want, again, to support everyone that's involved with the scenario. So we want to make sure that um, if somebody is not comfortable, then, then they don't have to be the one that's responsible for all the decision making. Statistics, 87% say it's important to have proxies. 23% of people have them done. Half of those people know where they are. It's pretty powerful statistics right there. Death is the second leading fear in this country. That is high. And so when I was witnessing this fear myself, I would say, well, um, I know I there must be something that's that awful because of this fear that I'm seeing over and over. Well, let's find out what that is. And what do you think I found out? Nothing. I couldn't find out any real fear that was preventing anyone from talking about end of life, planning for end of life, and even letting people die peacefully and naturally. So again, maybe it's something that ran away from us and we developed this huge fear because of the quote unquote unknown. The number one leading fear in this country, by the way, I get asked that question a lot, is public speaking. Fun fact. It's also important that the number one fear of the dying patient is that they do not want to be a burden to their family. This is something we want to be so sensitive to because we want to know why people are not being kept at home if they want to be at home, if that's their wish. And if they feel like they're going to be a burden, then they try and avoid obviously putting um, you know, families in those situations. But also I've had as my years in hospice, many times where we're at that end of life, the patient is home with the family taking care of them. And I've had so many patients tell me how guilty they feel for putting their family through this and having to be dependent on them. And so this is a big one. You know, when we're doing this work, we're really trying to uh, bring about, you know, the healthiest, get, get topics out on the table that need to be talked about, closure, making sure that everyone is communicating. Because um, one of the biggest things that I always say to the patient is that when, and it's usually adult children that are taking care of, this loved one, that when they were babies, that you didn't think twice about getting up in the middle of the night, changing their diapers and feeding them. And now, and they want to do this for you and they love you and they want to take care of you. So we, we do get a lot of great response from that, but we really want it to be an open because we don't, the last thing in the world we want is for this patient who's at end of life to feel guilty about this or to, and I've had patients even prevent themselves for asking for what they needed because they didn't want to burden people. And that's just not acceptable. 78 million baby boomers started turning 65 last year, 78 million. We have to get ready for this. We want to We have to set up a system where we can support these patients and families. We want to get the support to the families to take care of these loved ones who want to be at home. So that's a pretty significant number. Of that number, 20% of them do not have children. So we talk about the, the adult children usually being the main caregivers for the parents. 20% of them don't have children. Who's taking care of these people? So we really want to have options and get training out there and get things set up. End of life doula training. It is the skill of learning how to care for someone who is dying. This is a skill that was handed down a hundred years ago, generation to generation. Families would have, well, people would die much earlier. The average age a hundred years ago um, of a person's lifespan was 46. Now it's 78. That's a big difference. The other, the other thing was that people would have home uh, wakes and funerals, and it was more common that people saw that dying process. But now we've lost that. So what, what are we going to do? We're going to reteach that. And this program has really put it in a very easy, comprehensive learning um, 
package. And the other thing about the doula program is that there are three different levels of end-of-life doula training. And this is important to know because there have been people who have come to me and said in the very beginning that uh, I really feel called, that this is my calling. I've, you know, I've had experience with end-of-life. I'm comfortable around it. It resonates with me, and I, I feel like I want to do this as an occupation. So that's fantastic. For me, visioning this, it would be that at least one person in every family, whether it be an extended person to that family, would have this basic training so that when the time comes that somebody needs them, someone at least can have the, um, the knowledge and hold that energy for everyone in the family. The other vision was for us to have a volunteer network of end-of-life doulas. There are wonderful people that came up to me and said, Suzanne, I, I would love to be a volunteer. I'd love to help, but I don't know what I'm doing. And so I said, I'll teach you. So that's wonderful. You know, getting back to that neighbor taking care of neighbor. I, for one, have two elderly women on my block who are in their 80s who don't both do not have children and live alone. So for, I mean, thank goodness we have a wonderful, wonderful community in our neighborhood, but you know, there are 20% of those baby boomers do not have children. So just having this basic knowledge and being able to help out a community member, a neighbor, I really think that we've lost that. And I think it would be great to bring it back. And then the level three is the certified end of life doulas who are, you know, either going to add it to an already existing um, healthcare practice or field, or they're doing it just as a end-of-life doula practitioner. A hundred years ago, this was a skill that was handed down gen generation to generation. There also used to be a medicine woman in the village that used to come to the bedside of the dying and hold that space and take care of um, the family. When you are caring for an end-of-life patient, you are not only caring for that patient, but you are caring for that entire group of loved ones. And I say loved ones because it's not always a, just a family. It's not always just a blood relative. It could be best friends. It could be um, whoever is attached to that. They are going through this process, and we, as that end-of-life doula, are taking care of everyone involved. There are three phases of care, the shock phase, the stabilization phase, and the transition phase. Tonight, we're going to be going over the shock phase, and I think that you're going to find that each of these phases represents um, a, a clear-cut learning. At the end of the learning, you're also going to have case studies that are going to be specific to what phase you are in. So you'll see that you're really going to be building upon the knowledge and the learning. So again, three phases of care with end-of-life doula training, the shock phase, stabilization phase, and transition phase. The shock phase. This is when someone gets a terminal diagnosis. Oftentimes there's an overwhelming feeling of shock for both the patient and their loved ones. This shock can present itself in many ways, such as depression, denial, anger, and withdrawal. For me, most of my experience, about 90% of my experience has been shock. And that's why I call it the shock phase, because you can only imagine that somebody gets that diagnosis. Well, does anything else really matter? No, at this, at this moment, nothing else really matters. That, you know, you've just been told that you have a limited amount of time and it really does present in a shock for both the patient and the loved ones. So here's the important thing that what you can do, and when I say you, I mean, you know, as, as a family member doula, as a volunteer, or as a end-of-life doula, what can you do as that person helping this patient and the family? It's extremely helpful to remember that this person and family have just lost all control over their life. Telling someone that they are terminally ill and that there is no reversing the process requires those around the family to have a strong, supportive presence. What does that mean, a strong, supportive presence? Um, when you think of somebody losing control, when you enter in a family's home that has just gotten that diagnosis and they're in that kind of shutdown shock uh, position, 
the last thing we want to do is come in there. And, um, even though we know instantly, probably some of the things that we'd like to implement and get into place, we have to be very, very sensitive on how we do that. Because at this moment, the last thing they need is somebody coming into that house, especially that they don't know. And even if you do know them taking over and directing and giving orders, because it's going to shut down the communication. It's also going to feel like you're taking more control from them and they've just lost it. So we really want to be that strong, supportive presence. We want to be wonderful listeners, asking the patient, how can I help you? What can I do? What can I do for you? You, you, you wouldn't say to somebody, it's going to be okay, because we don't know that it is going to be okay. And so I've had so many people come up to me and say, you know, I've had a family member or a friend, and they had a terminal diagnosis, and I didn't know what to say. So I didn't say anything. I avoided them. And of course, that hurts everybody. And they have a lot of guilt with that. So we don't want you to avoid them, but we want to give you the tools of how to be around somebody and maybe what you can do to be supportive. So asking a patient, give them back choices. These might seem like extremely simple little things, but for somebody who's just lost control, we want to try and give them back as much decision-making as possible. Let them be the directors of this. So asking somebody, what can I do for you? And this goes as well as the family members. How can I help you? A lot of times when somebody is getting this diagnosis, they have been ill probably for quite some time. They might've been going through treatment. They might've been going through an illness for years or uh, months. And we all know how exhausting that can be on the entire family. So again, for that main support person of the caregiver, seeing how they're doing and looking around to ask them what we can do to help them as well. Um, being a great listener and being a great person that observes things. So when you go into that household, you know, you're really being a little detective on that first visit. You really are looking around to see what kind of shape are things in and what are you picking up? You know, what are you picking up as far as anything that is um, a safety issue or what I call acute issues that we'll go over because we do have to get things in place quickly, but it's how we go about doing it in this very beginning that we're very sensitive to so that we don't, we don't um, shut people down and um, seem like we're trying to take control over, which is not going to lead us to any good place. Now, why is this important? It is vital to establish trust and security with a patient and their family at this time. Their world has just been turned upside down. The best way to achieve this is through being a strong, solid support. Never take over. Meet the patient and the family where they are in their process and work from there. You know, we have people who come on and are in that shock phase, maybe in that denial phase, and sometimes stay in that phase for the duration of the time with them. We have to meet people where they are. We never push. If somebody is in there, then we support them and do what we can where, where they are. Um, do we want everyone to have the best, healthy, go through all three phases um, and, and have that beautiful, peaceful ending? Of course, you know, that's our goal. Is it always possible? It's not. You know, I wish that I could say that it was, but this is their journey and we're there to support them and whatever that means. So let's talk about establishing trust and security. You know, you only have, I always say that within the first 24 hours, you're going to set the tone for that entire relationship with this patient and family. And the way you want to do that is you want to establish that trust immediately at the highest level, because by doing that, you can then have a great open dynamic where when things do need to be discussed, interventions need to be suggested, they are going to trust you already. So there's a high likelihood that they are going to more easily take what you are suggesting and implement it, which will help them. Um, but if they don't trust you, then of course, we're not going to be able to get that communication going. So um, why is it important and how do we do that? Again, we don't want to come in there and take over. 
So we're not, we're not bossy. We're not taking over. We're meeting people where they are. Uh, the other thing I think that is extremely important and again, might sound very, very small, but you, you have to remember that, that they are going through this and only this is what they're thinking about. Mm. So for us, if you say to somebody that, uh, you're going to do something and that you're going to, let's just say, for instance, you you have a meeting with a family and you say, uh, you know, I'll call you tomorrow at 12. Okay. The family's doing okay. There's no major issues that you can see and you have a lot to do in your day and 12 o'clock comes and you're kind of in the middle of something and you call it one thirty. as silly and small as that might sound. That person heard you say that you're going to call them at 12 o'clock and they, you're their lifeline. They're looking at you to be their strength. Their per, they're one that they're going to trust with their journey. And when we do not keep our word on even the littlest things, we're, we're really being watched through a magnifying glass. I know this sounds small, but trust me on this. I have encountered this many, many times. So if you have something that's going on with a patient, try and give yourself a little cushion where, you know, if you're working with somebody, maybe don't pick an exact time. Give yourself a leeway. The I'll call you in the afternoon or give yourself the hours that you're going to be doing something within. And then make sure you write yourself a note so that we can keep that. Um, and everything that you say, if you say that, you know, you're going to get them something or that, you know, for me as a hospice nurse, when we're ordering equipment and medications, you know, I would lose the trust of patients and rightly so if I said that those meds would be delivered the next morning and they weren't there um, or vice versa with, you know, with the equipment or anything of that. So it's really important to know how sensitive establishing the trust is. It sets the tone for the whole journey with them. And it's the little things that they are going to be watching. So we just want to really know that we have got to follow through with anything and everything we say at this point. Uh, be that strong, solid support, never take over and meet the patient and the family where they are. Sometimes I will have a patient who is actually has gone through the three phases and is very accepting for where they are at end of life. And maybe their caregiver is in denial. This does happen and it's a very tricky place to be. So you have to, again, individually be taking care of the loved ones. And if somebody is, you know, having a place of denial, then that's where we meet them. Do we work with individual people separately? Of course. So that patient that is doing better and is able to verbalize um, their feelings and what they're going through, of, that's beautiful. And we work with them there and then uh, take everyone as an individual and also support them in their process. Give them back control. So important. If you can remember that in the shock phase, you're going to be in a really great place. So always think in terms, this family and this patient have just lost control. I need to remember to try and give them back control. And how we do that is by allowing them to make as many decisions as possible. They just lost control, the decision and the control that they are going to be with us for extended period of time. Now they have an end of life diagnosis. Everything else, we're going to give them decision-making. I do not, I do not compromise on safety. That's the one thing I don't negotiate on. Everything else is negotiable. Pain, I don't like to negotiate on with pain control, but that goes with education that we'll talk about. But safety is a non-negotiable, but we'll, we'll talk about how we're going to accomplish that without, again, trying to be, um, we never want people to think that we are, you know, belittling them or treating them like a child or that we are taking over. And it can get a little tricky because people, especially men who their bodies are declining and they think, oh no, I can walk, I can get up. And you know, if they're at a fall risk, it's a little tricky how we have to accomplish that, but we're never going to have safety be anything that's going to be, um, a risk factor. We always want to be watching for that. So remember to give them back control. Meet the patient and the family where they are. That's one of the things you're going to think about with the shock phase. Always meet them where they are. Um, we never force. You know, there have been people who have been end of life. I remember this one particular man and he was like, oh, I'm going to be going golfing in two weeks. And sure, 
let, you know, great. Have that conversation. Never say, you know, you know that he's not going to be golfing in two weeks, but we're of course not going to ever say that we meet the patient and the family where they are. Build the trust, build that trust. So important. And I have a patient story that I love to share on this because this was one of those cases where this wonderful woman had come down from Vermont to live with her son and his family. And he was a wreck. He was so nervous on my first visit and actually quite a lot of visits after that until we really got to a good place. Um, but he had no medical background and many people don't. Uh, so he was taking care of his mother and he had, um, a wife and a young daughter who was about eight years old. And I remember meeting him on the first visit and he was practically shaking a bit. Um, so nervous. She was doing fine at this point. And, you know, we would go over, we would talk about medications. We would talk about, um, what we would do if there was uh, an emergency. And I told him that he could reach me by cell phone. I would get the message and I would call him back within a few minutes and do you know that he would test me? He would just call that phone and time how long it took me to call him back. So that, again, he wanted to know that he could trust me. And it was so important to build that trust with him to allow this wonderful man to relax and enjoy the time that he had with his mother at the end here. And this case went so beautifully, but he, it took a while, it took um, probably, I want to say two to three weeks to get him. We don't always have that kind of time. And it, it was interesting because the patient was fine during all this time. Um, you know, he would question me on um, just medications or the disease process or anything. And he would just look up and make sure that what I was telling him again what I was telling him was correct information so he could trust me. And by him trusting me, let the walls come down and let me really be of help to him and his family for planning the care for her and for creating a wonderful environment that he could be present with his mother and have great conversations and not be consumed by the knowledge that, um, and the panic that she was at end of life and that it was going to turn into a crisis situation. So we always have three questions that we will ask in every case that you are on and in every visit. And I know this might sound redundant, but trust me that these questions, if you can, and you will, by the end of the four weeks, you're going to have this. This is going to be second nature to you when you have a case study that you're looking at that you're going to automatically be thinking of these three questions. We'll use this in every case and in every visit. The three questions are, are there any acute issues? Meaning, are there, you know, when that initial visit that you go on, are you noticing, is there anything that is kind of jumping out at you that needs to be solved right away? Pain issues, nausea, is there exhaustion? Many times on that first initial visit, you come about and you see that everyone's exhausted in the room. Or there could be active pain issues. You know, if somebody got a terminal diagnosis, uh, maybe their disease process has advanced and there's more pain that's not being addressed. So we want to make sure that we're really looking around for what I call any acute issues. And that means anything that needs to be addressed right away. Are there any safety concerns? Big, big, big. So we're always going to be watching for this. This could include fall risk, confusion, weakness, swallowing. There are two things that you constantly for safety are going to be evaluating every time you see that patient is the ability to stand or to walk because that is something that can change in a day. And can they swallow safely? That is something that can change in a day. So somebody who on Wednesday was able to do both these things on Thursday might not. And that can be a huge problem. So we want to evaluate for this all the time. A lot of the way we do this is by observing, watching people. Um, people will tell you that they can walk, uh, especially, you know, it's an ego thing. They've just, again, it's a control thing. It's like they're, they're not coming to terms sometimes with how their body's declining and they really can't safely walk. So there's no way that we want that to turn into an issue. The same thing with swallowing. You're going to observe somebody as they swallow. If they seem to be fooling around with food in their mouth, pocketing it in their cheek, 
um, it's not, it's taking them too long, then we know that we might have a swallowing issue and that can lead into a choking issue. And we're never going to get into a situation like that. So safety concerns. And then the third question that you're going to ask is what other support system do they have? It's really important for us to know who do we have that we can rely on in that family atmosphere for this patient. And also, I always like to stagger and schedule people to rotate. So let's say there has been a main caregiver for most of this time, this journey, and now it's come to a terminal diagnosis. That caregiver absolutely exhausted. We need to get that caregiver some rest. We need to start bringing in who else do we have? Do we have a church that somebody belongs to? Is there um, other community members, neighbors? other family. This is a great time for people to come on in and let's all take part in building that support system for this family. So case study number one that we're going to talk about tonight. Okay, we want to remember that we're always going to talk about those three questions with, uh, with each visit. And so this is our case study. This is our visit tonight. Are there any acute issues? Are there any safety concerns? And what is the support system? So let's see what we have. We have an 82-year-old man with a diagnosis of terminal cancer. He has been having chemo treatments for the last nine months. He has a history of arthritis and high blood pressure. He lives in a house with his wife, who is 78. They have been married for 48 years and have two children who live out of state. His wife has osteoporosis and cataracts. You enter the house to find the man in a reclining chair, sleeping in the living room. You notice a cane next to the chair. His wife is at the kitchen table. Her head is down and she is a bit slumped over. You notice that there are dishes overflowing in the sink and that there is unopened mail and papers all over the kitchen table. Uh-oh. When answering the three questions, think of what questions you might want to ask this couple in order to be able to help them. So this is the scenario that you're coming into. This is your first visit with them. And it's great to ask questions. You're allowed to ask questions. You're here to help them. So the more we can find out information, the better equipped we are going to be to help them. So I'm actually going to go back to that first slide so we can go through this together and answer some of those questions. So here we have an 82-year-old man with a diagnosis of terminal cancer. He's been having chemo treatments for the last nine months, and he has a history of arthritis and high blood pressure. So let's ask our questions. On this page, do we have any acute issues that are popping out at me? Well, it's not necessarily acute, but I'm noting that he's 82 years old. So he definitely is an elder man, and I also am going to note in my mind that he's been having chemo treatments for the last nine months. So if we know chemo can be a very difficult course sometimes to endure, so we might be having side effects from that, or he just might be really having an exhaustion from having um, all that medicine. And I want to just see where he's at. But those are things that's, that are going to be in my mind as I'm going to dig deeper and evaluate him. The other thing that is standing out here that I have to have a red flag about is that he has a history of arthritis. He also has a history of high blood pressure. But I don't know, when we talk about asking questions, Does how, where is the arthritis? How does that impact his daily living and how bad is it? I remember we talked about that he's in his reclining chair and he has a cane next to that chair. Uh, how is he doing with walking? Is this arthritis in his knees? Is it um, really a, a prevalent bad part of his his everyday existence. And the high blood pressure, I do want to note that because usually people on high, with high blood pressure are on blood pressure medications. So I just kind of want to have that. That's kind of in the back of my mind. So let's go now to the second page, which I think will give us a little bit more information. He lives in a house with his wife who is 78. So again, I have an elder woman who is his wife and they have a house. So for me, that home is going to possibly be that acute issue 
because managing a house is a lot of work. So I have two elderly people. The patient himself has been through nine months of chemo and his wife who lives with him is 78. They've been married for 48 years. When, when we have these kind of numbers that people have been together, you're going to immediately say this is going to be an extremely emotional that the person they've been with for over half of their life just got a terminal diagnosis. And we know that they have two children who live out of state. So for us, that's going to be logged into what is the support system. His wife has osteoporosis and cataracts. Um, again, how bad is that osteoporosis for her? And how bad are the cataracts? We, we need to ask those questions. We need to dig a little bit deeper into that. You enter the house to find the man in a reclining chair, sleeping in the living room, and you notice a cane next to the chair. So let's just work on this page for a minute. Do we have acute issues? We do. We have, we have some things here that need more clarification, but things that would be in that acute category, meaning that the caregiver is an elderly female who has osteoporosis and cataracts, and they live in a house. So I'm going to think that our acute issue is going to be managing and who's going to be helping with the house and actually the care as well. We have two children that live out of state. So for us, we need to know, is it possible that those two children can be part of the support system and come home? Some people have the flexibility that they can come home. Some people do not. So we're going to have to ask more questions on that. Um, for this, the, the son lives in California all the way across the country, and he manages a company, and he has two small children of his own. He's not able to come home at this time. So again, we have to talk with the family and ask more questions for that. You enter the house to find the man in a reclining chair sleeping. In the living room, you notice a cane next to the chair. We have to assess and find out his safety issues. We have to see, is he able to ambulate, to walk safely, to even stand safely? He's in that reclining chair. He's sleeping. I'm sure he's exhausted. We know he's been through chemo. Uh, we also, on the next page, have found that his wife is at the kitchen table with her head down, a bit slumped over. And as you look around, you're being that bit of that detective that there are dishes overflowing in the sink and that there is unopened mail and papers all over the kitchen table. I'm going to think we have an acute issue here, that we have exhaustion, that we have uh, two people who've been battling this um, disease and going through probably multiple visits to the doctor and going back and forth. And now they're actually told they have an end of life process. I think they're completely overwhelmed. I think we have safety issues for both of them. We don't know um, where the woman is as far as her exhaustion, her ability to the osteoporosis, and the fact that she's 78. We know as we looked around that there are dishes and that there is mail that's not open, so we know that there is neglect here. We have to immediately say to ourselves, we have to get help into this house. Um, so those are your safety issues and also your acute issues. We want to find out again: can this man walk, and what kind of um, what kind of effect does that arthritis have on him? Is he having pain? How do we know if somebody's having any pain issues? We ask. You know, it's okay to ask somebody if you're having pain. One thing that's extremely interesting is that people will tell you, and they tell me all the time, that no, I'm not having pain. Um, it doesn't hurt unless I move. <laughs> and I love them because they're so sweet. And again, I think it goes to that they don't want to be a burden, but we have to move. The goal is for our patients is to have the highest possible quality of their day. So what does that mean? We want to make sure that pain is managed. We want to make sure that nausea is managed we want to make sure that people have the ability to have the highest quality of their day, meaning we're implementing um, more support systems or getting in equipment into the house to help with safety and to make the ease of things. Um, we want to find out, is their bedroom up on the second floor? You know, they're in this house. That might just not be an option anymore. So what are we going to do? We're going to help facilitate getting a possible hospital bed for the ease of it. Uh, maybe a walker. Maybe that gentleman has been walking with a cane 
up until this point, and now he really either needs a walker, a wheelchair, or even both. So we talked about safety issues with this case. We talked about acute issues with the exhaustion that's just apparent with both of them, with the neglect in the house. Um, but let's talk about the support system because that's the red flag and that's actually the acute issue that we have got to find what support is available for this family to help with this process because what we're watching right now is not working. So we need to find out for those two adult children, is it possible they can come home? They might not even know how serious. You know when children call up their families, what do, what do parents always say? Oh, everything's fine. We're fine. And then they come to find out that it really hasn't been fine. But the, the lovely parents don't want to burden them. So, you know, it's not always obvious to adult children who live out of state how serious sometimes things are. Um, so we want to see, is it possible? We want to also know, do they have obviously friends or family or anyone in the community that can help? But, but then do they have resources that it's possible to maybe hire an aide to come in here? This is a perfect scenario of two elder people that would do really well with having somebody come in and doing uh, the bathing and helping with the physicality of helping this gentleman. We want to allow that wonderful woman to be present and with her husband taking away all of the stress and burden of managing that house and doing the physical caring of him to the point that it's too much for her, which I think it is already. So we want to get her some rest, get her that support in that house for safety, to handle the acute issues, but also to allow her to have this time with her husband to not have to be playing all those different hats that she has been playing. Because if, if we're running around trying to fix everything, we're not gonna be able to have those great conversations with our husband that we wanna have, that are really healthy to have at the end. So we wanna find out, do they have uh, money? That's the resource that we can hire someone, is that an option? If it's not, does the family have um, the option of hiring? somebody. So, you know, again, talking to those adult children and seeing what we have, maybe we can implement that neighbors are going to stay with them overnight and rotate a shift. I also always say, let's delegate. Let's get people in there and start delegating the things that need to be done. Meaning, you know, maybe somebody can come in there and help get that house organized. Maybe somebody can come in and do managing of the, the lawn and, you know, taking care of the household chores. And then maybe a rotating schedule on people to, to bring in food. People want to help. People always do want to, but they, they don't always know what would be helpful. So taking those tasks, those things of that we always have to do and delegating them out can really bring a lot of ease and, and decrease the stress for this family. So we have that scenario. We're going to ask those three questions. Always think of the three questions. Are there any safety issues? Are there any acute issues? And what support does this family have? You want to ask this, these questions on every visit in every case because these always change. Let's say there's family that came in a few weeks from now. Well, wait, all of a sudden you have more support. You have a fresh, uh, fresh people that came in that are not exhausted that you can now put as the main caregivers. Um, maybe people have had to go back to work. Um, safety issues. Again, we talked about the walking and the swallowing can change on a dime. So we want to constantly be reevaluating that. And acute issues. Somebody who had pain one day, um, it might increase another time. Somebody who didn't have nausea, maybe now they do have nausea or anything that is something that needs to be rectified. We, so we always want to be asking those three questions. And as you get that in your training. And as you start to, in every case, think of those three questions, it will help you tremendously be able to create a care plan for this family. Um, we will be building upon that again, but we, right now you're going to stick to those three questions. And again, know that you're going to have to ask questions that you're going to be walking into a scenario and you're going to inherently say to yourself, well, how bad is the osteoporosis? Or, you know, is this blood pressure controlled? Um, is that cane something that is working now? 
Can, can those children be notified and can they come home? So you do have to, and it's okay to ask. You're here to help them and they're going to really love you for it. So it's very important to know that it's okay to ask questions. You're not um, prying. You're not, you're there as an end of life doula. You are there to assist this patient and their family with what they're going through in this end of life journey. So asking questions is expected and always asking somebody, how are you doing? I think one of, you know, in my last live training, this came up with somebody saying, you know, well, what do I, what do I say to this woman? You know, how do I say something to her? And I'll tell you for even for both of them, but especially for caregivers, as the patient is going through everything, you know, the focus has been on them and rightly so. But, you know, you found this woman at the kitchen table with her head down and slumped over and she's exhausted. I don't know how many people have been asking her how she's doing. And so if you can just start it with that, you'd be amazed at how that opens up the conversation and she will let you know what she needs and even ask her, what can I do to help you? And it might be, and it probably will be to get her some immediate rest and some support in there. Let's review the shock phase that we went over tonight. Be a supportive presence, really be a great listener, we don't go in there to take over. We want to go in. We want to really observe everything that we're seeing to know what we um, inherently want to prioritize as far as getting things in place, getting getting um, issues that are active resolved, uh, meet the patient and the family where they are. And this can be a little frustrating at times. You know, we want everyone to have that fantastic end of life experience it takes time and people move through phases. So do not worry. This is why this first phase is called the shock phase, because that is what you are going to see most of the time. You are going to see what is shock. Shut down, quiet, and you want to really be that great listener, supportive presence. You're going to be walking. The, you're going to be with them through this. You will be there for them. And even telling them that would be a wonderful thing to do. You want to build that trust how do we build that trust? The easiest way to do that is for A, not taking over, but also B, is to follow through with everything that you say that you're going to do. And literally within that 24 to 48 hours, you establish the tone for your entire relationship with this patient and this family. And ask the three questions in every case and on every visit. Are there any safety issues? Are there any acute issues? And what support system is available? Question and answer. Email any. Thank you so much for joining this edition of Ask a Death Doula. My name is Suzanne O'Brien. Ask a Death Doula is brought to you by doulagivers.com end-of-life doula training, and the International Doula Givers Foundation, providing free education, support, and training programs to those around the world in order to help make a positive end-of-life experience for everyone everywhere. So please don't forget to write in any question you may have to askadeathdoula at gmail.com. You can also use our Facebook and Twitter and also Instagram with the hashtag askadeathdoula, and we will address your questions on the shows. So thank you so much for being with me. It does take us all to make this impact, and we're doing it together. So have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.